When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to Peoples and Things, where we explore human life with technology. I'm Lee Vinsel. Oh man, you know, I'm part of a club of historians. We have a secret handshake and such. And what we believe is that there have only been two real technological revolutions in human history. The first was when humans settled down and became agriculturalists, and in some places, but not all, civilizations emerged. And the second is whatever has been going on for the last 150 or 200 years or so. That's it. For most of human history, including most of the time covered by these two revolutions, most human effort went into procuring food. And it's only through the industrialization of agriculture over the past 150 years or so that that story's changed, that we produce enough agricultural surplus through the work of relatively few people that the rest of us can do other things. Though, of course, many of us still spend a significant amount of time in our lives preparing food, let alone eating it. And while there are many great books to look upon, probably we do not have enough work on food in technology studies. That's one reason why I was excited by the book in today's episode, U.S. History in 15 Foods by historian Anna Zeta, an associate professor of history at Virginia Tech, my home institution. U.S. History in 15 Foods is an entertaining and approachable book that can be read by anyone. It would make a great text for undergraduate classes, for example. Zeta uses the lens of food history to cover key moments and major themes in the history of the United States from before European colonization to the present. Now, I have worked hard to minimize the number of my friends I have on this show. I figure the Folds podcast, that stands for Friends of Lee Dialogues, would be a different kind of show, and frankly, I'm not sure it's one I'd want to be around. And Anna and I are not just friends, it goes deeper than that. During COVID lockdown times, her family and my family formed a homeschool pod together. 
so we have spent a lot of time together. But in this case, I feel less ba bad about having her on because historian, environmental studies, STS scholar, and sometimes Peoples and Things listener, Benjamin R. Cohen, suggested I have Anna on to talk about this new book. And I think that was the right move. So thanks, Ben Cohen. And by the way, we love to receive tips and suggestions for guests to have on, so please fire away. I have also been somewhat reluctant to have folks on who work here at Virginia Tech, but you'll see over the coming weeks and months that will be changing. There are so many terrific people here whose research I would like to highlight. An upshot of this is that Anna and I shot this interview together here in the Athenaeum, the Virginia Tech studio where the production team and I create the podcast. Now, personally, I always listen to podcasts, but if you are interested in watching Anna and me chat together in person, you could mosey over to our YouTube channel at one word, people's things, no and or ampersand, and check out the video. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Anna. It was a lot of fun and also meant a lot to spend some time with a friend like this. Hey, get excited. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me Thank today. you. I'm really excited for this conversation. U.S. History and 15 Foods is a neat book. When you explain it to strangers, <laughs> if you ever have to do that, I know that you have had to do that. What do you say it's about and what were you trying to do with it? Yeah, well, in this case, I really like that the title sort of sells itself and it's very clear what the book is. Um, and I think it naturally sets up this sort of question of like, okay, I know what U.S. History is can imagine how food sort of fits into that, but what are these 15 foods? What does it mean to tell U.S. history through particular foods? And so I kind of say, you know, most people have encountered a U.S. history class at some point. They're sort of the greatest hits, whether it's, mm -hmm. you know, revolution, civil war, World War II. How do those events and major turning points look different if we look at them as rooted in food as having a really central role in those? So how do we understand our nation's past and ourselves differently when really highlighting food as a really important part of who we are and how we came to be, mm -hmm. both kind of individually and as a nation. Um, and then I feel like it very naturally leads people to want to guess, what are some of the foods? What do we think of when we think of American food? Mm -hmm. How did you become a food historian? Um, there's many paths into this, and I think I answer this question differently depending on uh, the moment, but um, I think it was twofold. One was a kind of more personal um, answer, which was that I think from a very young age, I had a sense of how important food was to identity, to explaining how I was different and similar from other people, um, in that I grew up in an immigrant family in a very small town in the South, in, in Arkansas, um, where most people ate one way, and then my family ate very differently. Um, and you know, the kinds of food that I brought for lunch, the ways that I um, saw my friends eating when I was inviting for sleepovers and things like that, very quickly made me realize that there were certain cultural norms, values, assumptions that we held different that were not just about food, but that food embodied those. Mm -hmm. um, and thinking about how food matters to who we are um, really was something I think I came to quite young. 
Um, and then more academically or professionally, um, my PhD is in the history of science, medicine, and technology. Um, and I found myself wanting some topic to study that helped bring together the intersection of these various fields of interest. So I was really interested in nutrition, in science, in gender, in consumerism, in environmental issues, in expertise, all of these different topics. And I didn't want to just choose one thing. And a lot of these topics felt like questions around food, around the food industry, around diet, around how people make choices about what they eat um, could be studied through through food. And mm -hmm. it allowed me to bring together many different elements of my training, my interests, my background. And um, it kept emerging as this topic that that both intellectually was really satisfying and made for really good storytelling mm -hmm. and really good teaching, I think, topics that students could connect with really, really centrally. Cool. Yeah. Um, you had this earlier book, Canned the Rise and Fall of Consumer Confidence in the American Food Industry, uh, which won a 2019 James Beard Media Award, which yes. is pretty cool. <laughs> so yeah. wh what was that book all about? Yeah, that's one where I feel like the title itself, Canned, doesn't tell you as much. You need that subtitle, The Rise and Fall of Consumer Confidence in the American Food Industry. So it was a history of canning, of the canned food as a technology, of the canning industry as one of the first industries that developed around a packaged processed food and really laid the foundation for this entirely, you know, a very packaged industry that we have today. When we mm -hmm. think of American food today, you can't think about it as separate from the incredible um, processing technologies that we have. And those really found their roots in many ways in canned food mm -hmm. in the late 19th and early 20th century. Um, and so I, told, I tell the story of the kind of industry leaders, the scientists, the government, um, it, it, officials that those nex nexus of actors work together to build this foundation of convincing consumers that they wanted to eat a food that was inside of an opaque container that you couldn't see inside of, that had maybe been in there for months at a time, at a time when most food, if it had been sitting around for months, was going to be spoiled. Yeah. Um, so what, what it took in advertising and media, marketing, to make people trust and then fully give themselves to this kind of packaged food industry that now we eat from without a second thought. Mm -hmm. yeah. and what's the what's the fall part? Yeah, well, I guess I, I say often it's, you know, really a rise and fall and rise and fall. Mm -hmm. and there's been a lot of ebbs and flows in the, the relationship of Americans to packaged foods in the food industry, um, both canned food specifically and then the broader industry that it sort of gave birth to mm -hmm. in that, um, you know, there was an initial excitement about canned food by very specific audiences, people who were uh, removed from agricultural production in some way, whether that was sort of people traveling um, overseas, you know, colonizers, explorers, people going to the North Pole, these kind of extreme cases. Um, but the, the rise came much more slowly with regular consumers. Then it starts to rise. By the 1950s, you have this great um, kind of golden age of, of packaged food. And then there's a lot of questioning of that packaged food industry in the 60s and 70s. Mm -hmm. A lot of the kind of countercultural movements against other um, kinds of you know, notions of racism and, and sexism and uh, war that we see with a lot of the movements of the 60s and 70s also took on industrial food as one problematic element of this kind of um, you know, industrial complex that we mm -hmm. see. And so there's some of somewhat of a fall and then a kind of a, a resurgence as 
the industry leaders try to tackle these complaints and start to see that they have to do a lot of work to maintain interest. And then I'd say, you know, today, not quite a fall, but, you know, in the early 21st century, we've certainly seen a lot of complaints and concerns around the broader industrial food system that um, canned yeah. food gave rise to. And so calls for local food or fair trade food or, um, you know, plant-based foods, all of these things are, are a kind of fall of consumer confidence in the food system that has been feeding us for so long. Yep. Yeah. So how did you come to write U.S. History in 15 Foods? Um, yeah, the book is part of a series at Bloomsbury Press called History in 15, mm -hmm. and my, my book is the first of the series. And the idea really is how do we take some big topic, U.S. history, world history, Latin American history, um, any regional approach, and break it down th to use 15 objects, 15 moments, 15 songs, 15 people, 15 foods in this case, as a way to kind of create legible, kind of tangible case studies that allow easy entry points for general readers, for students. Um, and we do have the idea that this is a great teaching book in the yeah, sense that- Yeah, I think that, it definitely is, yeah, like shot at the right level. Yeah, and if we can, yeah. you know, 15 foods could map onto 15 weeks of a semester, yeah. could teach very neatly in that way. But for really anyone, yeah. it felt like a, a way to break down big topics into kind of bite-sized chunks, even when food is not at the center. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I was invited to write this book with that uh -huh. kind of vision. And then, and then it was a matter of, you know, diving in to think about how do I choose these foods? How do I actually yeah. try to tell a comprehensive story, but without any claims that these are the definitive 15 foods or that, yeah. you know, no others would be able to tell the story, which is definitely not what I'm trying to do in the book. Right. And so, yeah, that, I mean, that you teed up my next question. Yeah. So, like, how would you kind of like, I mean, there's so many foods, right? And yeah. you, you lead in with the introduction, like, when you, you, you say, you, like, when you told people you were writing this book, they'd be like, well, you got to include this or yeah. this. Like, so how would you, you choose 15 out of the pile? Yeah, and I do say, you know, I think an entirely different 15 could tell the story just as well. Any yeah. food that we think of could probably be used to tell a certain part of the story. I really tried to think less about the foods themselves. So not like, what are 15 iconic American foods? You know, there's no apple pie in, in the book or no mm -hmm. hot dog. And instead more thematically and chronologically. So I tried to break down the kind of major turning points in US history and say, okay, if I wanted to tell the story of the early 19th century, for example, what kind of food um, what are the major themes and events and things happening at that time? And what's a kind of food that can really flesh out those themes? Mm -hmm. So I sort of started with the time period and the, the themes and moments and movements mm -hmm. of that era rather than the foods themselves. Um, yeah, and I'd say some foods came fairly naturally, like corn featured on the cover of the book is something that a lot of historians have written about yeah. as very central to settlement and colonization. Um, and other foods are much more quirky and, you know, um, happen to be something that I had known about from other reading or that I came to as I looked into both primary and secondary sources around a certain period. Um, and yeah, a few of the foods definitely changed from my initial like chapter outline vision mm -hmm. to when I actually started to write. Oh, that's um, so yeah, lots of movement around the foods. Mm -hmm. When you were thinking about the themes, were there were there a couple themes that you wanted to track throughout, or were you really thinking more like a U.S. historian, like here's the themes we tackle when we tackle the American Revolution, or yeah, um, 
maybe both. I think that there are certain things that I'm just interested in and have been interested in as a historian, mm -hmm. which are part of my training is as an environmental historian. So I'm very interested in the materiality of food and the production mm -hmm. side all the way through the consumption side. So how do these foods originate? What is the growth process, the labor involved, the impact on the environment, how they're grown? And then how do those foods come to land on our plates? And also what happens afterward? You know, how do they turn into waste? How do mm -hmm. these foods uh, in, affect an entire um, kind of farm to table approach? So I did want foods that can help me highlight that theme of yeah. the important cross section across um, production to consumption. Um, I also, you know, the story of America is largely a story of sort of race and ethnicity and immigration. Mm -hmm. um, and those themes come up and track throughout the entire book. And then I also found myself um, wanting to think about, you know, our kind of current moment and where we found ourselves, both in terms of what some of the problems have been in the way that the country has developed and also moments of hope, like what have been reform movements that have taken place around food that might show us how positive change is made in different moments. So mm -hmm. I would say those are some of the themes that um, felt central to a number of different chapters. and. Um, that I think hopefully leave readers not with just disparate chunks of interesting stories and instead something that coheres around, um, you know, what do we take away from the book as a whole. Mm -hmm. So you start the book with, is it pemmican? Pemmican. Yeah, right. so what is this stuff and, yeah, what does it kind of allow you to see as a historian? Pemmican is, yeah, a fascinating food that... Um, you know, some people refer to it as sort of like a, the, or the first energy bar or something of this sort because it was very much a food of preservation. Uh, so I use it to tell indigenous foodways in uh, North America pre-colonization. And it's basically a mixture of like animal fat, dried and pounded animal flesh, and sometimes seeds, nuts, or berries that get combined into sort of a, a combination that's incredibly um, calorie dense. Mm. And so it can be... Um, you know, if people were going on a hunt for several weeks, they could pack it into pouches and then just take a chunk of it at a time and it would fill many of the caloric needs for, for a full day at a time. Um, and so it was a method of both um, different parts of the country would, um, based on regional environmental availability of different animals and foods, pemmican could be made of different uh, materials. So on the plains, bison were the primary ingredient. In the Pacific Northwest, you might have salmon, here on the East Coast, you might have venison. It's very um, kind of geographically dispersed. Right, right? and that's such, a, that's such mm. a core part of indigenous foodways is that food cultures were entirely based on geography and on yeah. region, right? That, that the way we think of um, indigenous sort of the map, it's very much based on environment and the animals and plants that would have um, been available in those places. And so pemmican helped kind of reveal that or explain that. Um, and also how central, you know, food preservation techniques were um, to, you know, pre-refrigeration, yeah. um, really to anyone in all of human history before the, the modern era, what it meant to be able to develop ways of drying food, of using fats and salts for, um, for preservation and to be able to eat when you weren't harvesting fresh vegetables or, or able mm -hmm. to hunt in the moment or fish. And pemmican really tells us that story as well. And then, mm -hmm. and then I used um, pemmican as the particular case of the Plains Indians and the bison 
um, flesh as a sort of case study of um, how dramatically populations were decimated and, and how much cultural changed with overhunting of bison and how the availability of a food like pemmican was so um, limited by colonization. Hmm. And you, you mentioned earlier that like corn is like, there's a lot of history of corn. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of energy around it. Yeah. What did you, I mean, when you, when you went into the corn history, I mean, what were you thinking as a historian? Like what, what felt fresh to you when you were looking into that history? Yeah, I mean, this is one where I think I had a sense of how important corn was to the ability of white European settlers to come and establish uh, colonies in the U.S. And yet I was still floored by how central it was, how mm. in almost every primary record that we have of any of like early Spanish conquistadors or later British um, colonists coming in, they talk about how widespread the cornfields were, how much their dependence and their survival was based on either first, um, you know, Native American um, gifts of corn and then the kind of, um, through warfare, the acquisition of lands on which to grow corn and how wow. much corn was the central player in all of these different conflicts that emerged um, and how at first it was kind of looked down upon by a lot of um, European colonists because corn in, in um, Europe was largely an animal feed or not n not a human wheat was, you know, the yeah. grain. And here it quickly was clear that that was, it was both versatile, it could be delicious, it grew really well, and it was adapted to the soils here in a way that um, for a long time wheat wasn't. Hmm. And so that ability to learn from native um crops and processes and then of course to take over it and to, you know in the modern era I don't I don't take corn into the present but the way that that native crop has become the foundation of our industrial food system yeah. um, it's a pretty you know amazing transformation a kind of a terrible one but also one that tells us a lot about the long um, yeah. history of, of the US yeah um Thank you for recognizing whiskey as a food. <laughs> yes. It makes me feel way better about my diet. Uh, so yeah, tell, tell us about whiskey. I, I want to hear about colonial drinking and also kind of American identity and, and whiskey. Yeah, I chose whiskey, yeah, partly because I did kind of want to drink in here because yeah. obviously the discussion of what, what, a whis what a food is and a drink is are uh, complicated uh, overlaps, but yeah. it, it is true that a lot of alcohol was calorie, um, something that provided calories as well, especially in early America. And so whiskey was this kind of fascinating story of um, American independence in the sense that we think a lot about, you know, um, the way that other symbols of like, uh, you know, the um, throwing the tea overboard or um, the creating homespun cloth instead of importing British textiles. I think we do hear quite a bit in talking about the revolution about ways that col um, the colonists distance themselves from Britain. Um, but I at least didn't know as much about the way that whiskey really was because it could be made from American grown grain in a way that rum, which was the kind of liquor of choice before the American Revolution and was dependent on sugar and molasses from the British West Indies and imports, that being able to to move from rum to whiskey meant a kind of independence. Um, and that it really created a shift in um, the kind of, the uh, you know, American leaders who were in the cities really looked down initially upon the frontiersmen yeah. um, who, you know, who were traveling west and growing grain and producing whiskey um, in in the frontier, but then they came to stand in as this kind of 
um, emblem of American ruggedness and the, the frontier, which was, you know, sometimes disingenuous, but um, that how whiskey really came to represent all of these really big notions around what it meant to be an American in the wake of the revolution and certainly afterward in the building of the new mm -hmm. nation. Yeah. And you bring in the, the whiskey rebellion, which some people will have remember from like high school, <laughs> like some paragraph right, about it exactly. in a textbook, but yeah. what was it and how does it kind of spin out this story? Right. So the whiskey rebellion is um, that in, in order to try to, to develop um, more revenue, Alexander Hamilton's treasury passes this um, tax on whiskey, on the production of whiskey. And this very quickly leads to all of these kind of frontier uprisings against the taxation of what mm. was seen as a very core foundational part of the local economies. And this was clearly a move by the Treasury to pull these frontiers people into the broader national economy. Um, and so you had a lot of these small rebellions begin to, um, to rise up. And then this was often used um, in American history textbooks to talk about kind of the first instance of federal power, mm -hmm. where George Washington sends in federal troops to put down these rebellions and succeeds in doing so. And it's sort of like the first time that the new nation um, balances this tension between democracy and a central power, um, mm -hmm. and that it works kind of shows that maybe we'll be able to figure out that balance. Um, but I kind of try to reframe it because I think a lot of the ways that it's talked about is like, oh, these, you know, rugged people are clinging to their Yahoo's. drink and it's all just about, yeah, yeah it's all <laughs> just about how much they want to get drunk. But in fact, this was a really core sense of a viable local economy, yeah. being able to process grain into whiskey on these small back roads meant instead of carrying huge heavy grain to market, they yeah. could carry much more condensed and distilled whiskey to market. And it, it did symbolize a kind of freedom that I think stood in for much bigger yeah. values um, than just their you know desire to get drunk. Um, no, totally. Yeah. I've always thought of it as a kind of technological infrastructure story. There yeah. are no real roads. Right. As you say, like carrying grain, moving yeah. grains, very difficult right. and possible, yeah. but you can convert it to hooch and it's right. much more valuable, high yeah. value product. Yeah, so, yeah. and it yeah. could be, you know, every small farm could have their own distillery or could communally do so. And as a result, had this, you know, really natural way of producing local scale, mm -hmm. um, valuable products. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, let's see here. Oh, one pot liquor. Uh -huh. So what is this? And yeah, I mean, tell us about pot yeah, liquor. Yeah, pot liquor is another one of these that, um, you know, a lot of people have not heard of. Some, some, especially from the South, I think, have a stronger sense of what it is. This is my chapter five food that I use to tell the story of food and slavery. Um, and pot liquor is basically the liquid that's left behind the broth mm -hmm. in a pot, the liquor in the pot after you've um, cooked greens, often with a piece of meat, um, pork for a really long time. And I use it to sort of illuminate the way that enslavers really used hunger as a tool to oppress mm. the enslaved people. So often um, they would take the, the enslavers would take the greens out of the pot to eat the greens and meat and then dump what they thought of as sort of the waste product into the troughs with the corn mush that was often fed to enslaved people. But, you know, with like modern understandings of nutrition, we know that like a lot of the nutritional value of greens seeps into the liquid uh -huh. after hours of boiling. And so as a result, in some ways, it was enslaved people taking something that was given to them as a waste product and, and taking real nourishment from it in the same way that, that there was a lot of effort at small scale local food production as a way of reclaiming some 
uh, agency for enslaved people. So growing collards or other small crops in their truck patches or small gardens, when they were able to trap small animals and hunt in that way, when they were able to take anything to market. Um, so this ability to kind of reclaim food as some space where sometimes there's a little bit of control that could be carved out, even as you know, enslavers tried to kind of mm. um, maintain the control on food supply as a way of, of oppressing um, their populations. Yeah, it's also funny. It's it's a fascinating story where like you're dealing with these situations of like control and necessity and mm -hmm. eating what you have access to, but pot liquor becomes like a highly prized and valued thing. Like I, I am not by, yeah. by no means like an expert in soul food, but I do know that like the pot liquor, or the you know the the juices that come along with the greens mm -hmm. are really kind of valued as like the good stuff. Yeah, and so it's there's a interesting thing where necessity kind of transforms into taste into, and desire and all these things right, too. Right, right. And I think that that is this, you know, story that transcends many different aspects of the legacy of slavery, of these kind of um, being forced into certain kinds of practices where that can be turned into something positive, into something that can be made into one's own, that it creates some space for feeling like this isn't just thrust upon mm. and instead, instead uh, embraced. And there is a lot of kind of you know, um, folklore or in inherited wisdom, again, even if like modern nutritional knowledge wasn't there to know that the greens had the vitamin A in it or whatever, um, that the pot liquor was nourishing, that it was mm -hmm. healthy, that dipping your cornbread in it meant that you were getting additional, you know, mm. grease from the meat that had cooked into the liquor or the deep greenness of it sometimes seemed to convey a kind of healthfulness as well. Hmm. And of course, I mentioned sort of a much more tragic way that it was seen um, as healthful is that there are some records of enslavers taking the greasy um, sort of, sort of sediment from the pot liquor and, and uh, rubbing it on the skin of the enslaved people that they were putting out for auction to make them look healthier and mm. glow to have this, and even around their mouths to make it look like they'd been eating meat because the grease. Mm. Um, and so this kind of very visceral, dark, way that pot liquor was used as a tool for selling human bodies and mm -hmm. turning them into these more prized um, um, elements. And you know that, that too kind of creates this like dark element of its, of its value. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. And I just want to make clear to um, listeners, I'm kind of hopping around through the book and I, I'm not uh, hitting all the books, both because it would take too much time or not all the foods but also because I want to leave something. Uh, <laughs> this is a good book people should pick up. So we're going to go from pot liquor. We're going to skip peanuts yes. and maybe one other food. And I want to talk about Jello. Yeah. And I especially want to. This was. I mean, I kind of knew the story about Jello, but you really draw out how like this is a progressive era food, mm -hmm. and it, it's wrapped up in kind of progressive thinking and, and other such things in a lot of different ways. So tell us a bit about right. Jello. Right. When uh, I think when anyone does guess Jello as one of the foods that might be in the book, they tend to think of it as this kind of 1950s mm. era food. Because you know anyone who we have one has Jello salads, right? Gross. <laughs> like the things they just put in Jello is truly nasty. Yeah, they the are 50s. amazing. The sort of <laughs> the way that Jello was used as this binding layer for salads of all sorts, yeah, for, seafood and stuff. It's yeah. really it's just bad. And it, and it was the time that maybe it reached that kind of level of saturation um, yeah. by the 1950s. But it, it is really central that it was invented around 1897. That it was this kind of. Um, progressive era food that came in part because of the um, availability of gelatin, the core 
component of Jello, which is this kind of meat packing byproduct. Um, it's, you know, comes from like cartilage and skin of animals and when boiled turns into this kind of gelling agent. Um, and because of the rise of the meat packing industry in the late 19th century, the rise of Chicago's packing town and, and these places that um, so many animals were being slaughtered in such close proximity that these byproducts could then be consolidated into large enough amounts so they could be sold for profit rather mm -hmm. than just being the waste. If you were slaughtering one animal on a farm, you'd probably yeah. not keep all of these parts. Um, and so the, the availability of this huge amount of gelatin is really what allowed Jell-O to become a company that profited from this byproduct and then add some fruit flavoring and some coloring and some sugar to make it a dessert, you know? How do you mm -hmm. take a meat byproduct and make it this jiggly dessert? And then, not unlike the canned food that I mentioned earlier, there was a need to create a demand for this. Like, how do you get people to want to buy a jiggly meat byproduct for dessert? <laughs> um, well, you know, you you come up with jingles and you use the the rising advertising industry. And Jell-O was very central in a lot of really interesting marketing ploys to get people interested in buying this, this food product. And so, at the same time that you have the rise of the home economics and domestic science movements that are trying to put a kind of scientific lens on food, Jell-O, this kind of neatly packaged industrial food product, fits into that kind of neatly sterilized mode of scientific food. Mm -hmm. So this is one that I think really does capture that production to consumption uh, path that I was talking about. That it's it's both about the availability of the gelatin on the production side and the creation of this taste. Mm -hmm. on the consumption side that allows Jell-O to sort of become a, a popular product in the early 20th century. And remember correctly that it's also like they were advertising about like fair labor practices there. That's right, so like... yeah. I mean so many, the Jell-O ads are just like a treasure trove of mm -hmm. amazing um, messages and, and ways that the producers were trying to uh, market Jello and, and yeah, a couple of the ads refer to Jello coming from these factories where you never see any labor disputes, which, you know, it seems to me says much more about the broader context of this yeah. moment of um, labor uprisings in a lot of different fac fields and factories. And of course, um, whether that has any truth in, in anything about the state of the workers in the Jello factories, it was this desire to sort of distance the dirty business of, you know, labor practices in other areas to say, this pure food, pure, purity is also a major theme in these hmm. ads that we're, we have pure. Morally pure. Exactly, moral right, exactly, yeah. yeah. That's so interesting. Yeah. Uh, skipping to one of my other favorites in the book, green bean casserole. <laughs> yes. Uh, I, we, we've now, in, on Thanksgiving, we make two, we usually make two green bean casseroles. Uh -huh. We make it like the old school way that you mostly read about uh -huh. in the book with the Campbell's soup. Right, hands uh, dumped in there. Yeah, yeah, and like a can of like, uh, you know, the uh, onions, the French, French fried onions. onions yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and then we make like an Alton Brown, like fancy mm -hmm. one, right? Yeah. Which is really good. People should check it out yeah. if they haven't. Sounds good to me. But, uh, but yeah, green bean casserole is so iconic. Mm -hmm. So how does it fit into this U.S. history of food? Green bean casserole is, yes, my 1950s food. It's very much a food, I, a chapter I wrote for my husband, who uh, his family is a green bean casserole aficionados <laughs> uh, of the classic Campbell's soup variety. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think that this kind of personal story that I have of debating whether or not this would show up on our Thanksgiving tables early on in our <laughs> relationship made me think about what this food 
come yeah. has come to represent. Whether you're making a highbrow version of it yeah. or having it on your table at all, it's a very regional food. Some parts of the country, I think, have like never really heard of it. Whereas for others, it's it's as Justin important are, as the turkey. Your husband Justin and I are both from the mid Midwest, right? I think and that's it's a very important. Midwestern yes, food. it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I, I wanted to think about how did that come to be. And so this is the 1950s post-war chapter that I use green bean casserole to tell this story. This really fascinating moment, both in kind of food history as well as American history, where. Um, you know, we're in the beginnings of the Cold War. There's this real need for America to assert its dominance over uh, communist Soviet Union and this question about what is re what represents America's greatness. And there's all of these things that get um, trumpeted out as evidence of American uh, superiority, but food and industrial food is very much one of them. Mm. And so foods like the green bean casserole that are composed of these canned foods kind of dumped and mixed together and then really critically sprinkled with the French fried onions, which were which was an innovation of a lot of these um, Campbell's Soup and other company uh, cookbook writers who said the women producing this need to feel like they get to put a little bit of themselves into it. There needs to be a little bit of glamorizing. That was the term used. So if they're just dumping cans in, that doesn't feel like it's a work of art. But if you take and you sprinkle a crunchy element on top, mm. then it feels like there's this, you know, creativity or this them putting themselves into the food, which I just think is so interesting from a psychological perspective. Um, and so the vision of these like neatly dressed housewives creating these foods, but not foods that are too hard or laborious to do so that they right. still have time to begin to enjoy the leisure of the American suburbs and their backyards, but still producing this nourishing and very comforting kind of dish, like a casserole uh, for their husbands as they come home in the evening. This is used by the U.S., you know, in its demonstrations and exhibitions um, to showcase the strengths of America, the technology of the canned food, and the domestic bliss of these hmm. women who don't have to work too hard to produce a, a lovely meal. Um, and so I just think that that, um, the, the symbolism of it, and then the actual dish as it gets invented by the Campbell's Soup Test Kitchen, I write about this woman, Dorcas Riley, who kind of invents this dish. Her uh, index card with the recipe is in the National Inventors Hall of Fame. Um, you know, representing this laboratory focus, this kind of research and development that's yeah. going on in the food industry that, you know, we think of much more often in kind of more uh, mechanical and other Yeah, we think of Bell Labs or Right, whatever. exactly. Yeah. yeah, Campbell's was doing it too. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So. That's cool. Yeah. Um, chicken nuggets. This is not, I've read some, I've read some history of chicken nuggets, but your chapter was really great, I thought. So tell us about how chicken nuggets connects to like the economics and politics of food in the 70s and 80s. Right. So yeah, chicken nuggets, I almost didn't realize this when I was first writing it because the next chapter is Big Mac. And in some ways I end up having like two McDonald's chapters right, <laughs> right next right. to each other, except that um, chicken nuggets I really do use. So chicken nuggets are largely invented through McDonald's creation of the chicken McNugget. Um, but it's it's again a story when we think about production, like with Jell-O. There are all of these factors that begin to create um, a much a huge rise in popularity and affordability of chicken by 1980, by the early 1980s, in a way that really chicken had not been a major um, meat of choice pre uh, mid 20th century. Yeah. And so, 
you have this kind of rise of chicken production, of increasing sort of labor practices that allow um, for reduced labor costs, for the centralization of chicken production in states that allow for um, more high-scale um, production, and then breeding efforts to create these really like front-heavy, large-breasted birds that can produce more of the white meat. Um, and then this recognition in the kind of economic sector that chicken for its own sake is always going to have huge fluctuations in price because it's so dependent on um, grain costs yeah. because pretty much to grow a chicken and sell it as a whole chicken just depends on its feed. Right. But if you can add value, this sort of value added or later further mm. processed where you're breading it, d deep frying it, double dipping it, you know, creating value added products that can be sold as frozen or microwavable or institutional servings that isn't just a whole chicken where you have to debone it yourself, then the chicken um, production has much more control of their costs. Mm. And so this is kind of an innovation that leads many chicken producers like Tyson and others to emphasize these value added or further processed products like chicken nuggets, chicken fingers, breaded, all, you know, chicken yeah, patties, yeah, yeah. all of the ways that chicken enters the mainstream, chicken tenders. Um, and then of course you have this additional element that these foods are often dipped in sauces and other things that allow for accompanying markets that create um, these demands. And then chicken nuggets fit so well into this kind of convenience-driven vision of the 70s, 80s, this increasing emphasis on, you know, uh, sending your kids to school with conveniently packaged foods or mm -hmm. having school cafeterias shift to only, you know, frozen, defrosting, deep frying foods rather than any fresh preparation. Um, and so there's so much of a food of this of this moment uh, in the later 70s and, and 80s of trying to consolidate um, food convenience. Um, mm -hmm. And at the same time, you have this kind of nutritional element that um, there are rising concerns in the 70s around heart disease and the way that that's linked to red meat. Yeah. Would you have this rise in interest in white meat, of chicken's popularity? But then, of course, you know, that's kind of <laughs> the problem here is, of course, then you take this relatively healthy white meat and you're turning into a quite unhealthy version of it when you're yeah. deep frying it and breading it and often deep frying it in oils that are also very heart unhealthy. Um, and so it's sort of this vision that's kind of corrupted by all of these economic pressures. Yeah. One of the things I like about the book, I mean, you mentioned it earlier when you said you're an environmental historian. Mm -hmm. You tend to, you, throughout the book, you really look at the kind of food systems, how each one of these foods mm -hmm. fit into these larger systems. So one of the things I didn't know is like grain policy shifts during this period mm -hmm. and how the, in the, I think it was in the late 70s, I should have noted this down in yeah. my notes, but in the late 70s, uh, grains were getting expensive, mm -hmm. there's shortages. So it was like, there's some policy shift yeah, where it's like, I, let's turn on the grain yeah. like crazy, primarily as feed, right? Right, right. And so this is, yeah, around 1973, the farm bill that's reissued every few years under um, Earl Butts, who is the head of the USDA at the time, really does not like New Deal policies that had been in place since the 1930s that were supposed to control mm. um, They were worried about overproduction grain, earlier, right? right? to hurt farmers. Yeah. And instead, because Butts is very centrally... Um, He's on the board of a number of uh, agribusiness companies and as a result really wants to support agribusiness who I needs see. cheap input mm -hmm. to produce cheap meat. You need cheap grain to produce cheap processed food. You need cheap grain. And so rather than having these price controls to help farmers, his thought is let's lift all the mm. all the um, 
the controls, and if we have extra, we'll export it abroad, which he does. He negotiates these trade deals. Um, and so the explosion of these cheap grain and the subsidizing of the cheap grain is really what we see as major uh, impetus for the explosion of in meat, cheap meat and meat consumption and processed food production. And it's a very, you know, it's still something when the Farm Bill is being reissued this summer, 2023, and there's a lot of discussion and has been among kind of food policy about how do we, we're still living in the legacy of that, um, those grain adjustments. And so how do we pull back when we now have a system so dependent on those cheap and subsidized grain? And it's, you know, a very no. policy level thing that very much comes down to affect the health and, and environmental impact of, of our food system. So, totally. yeah. Yeah. Um, so you end the book with Korean tacos, <laughs> which uh, the first time I heard you talk about this, like, and you mentioned, I was like, Huh? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, you're able to pull several fascinating things out of it. So why Korean tacos? Korean tacos are, yeah, an, an interesting choice and one that I, you know, I think will sort of become dated in a sense as the book mm -hmm. goes on, but not in a bad way because I, I do want it to tell the stories largely. I use it like 2008 to 2016, sort of Obama and Trump eras are the ways that I think of this last chapter. And Korean tacos really launch a number of, not launch, but... Um, highlight a number of really important themes from, I think, this first part of the 21st century. So the earliest um, kind of interest in um, Korean tacos comes from this Kogi food truck, which launches in 2008 on the streets of Los Angeles. Um, and it's this fusion food from neighborhoods, Korean and Mexican foods. And so in that way, I use it to tell the story of kind of this moment of embrace of the value of different immigrant traditions mm -hmm. and this long history of immigrant foodways um, that is in some ways an expression of Obama's success as well, this kind of multicultural embrace of this president whose background was from so many different places. Um, and this, these foods that came together deliciously from very different cultures and parts of the world. And then Kogi's success, the food truck's success, really comes in its ability to leverage Twitter, which is just launched around that time um, by announcing its location in different parts of the city based, you know, through through the medium of Twitter. And so then I use that to, to talk, talk about the rise of social media as mm -hmm. a, a very important and difficult force in uh, its effects on democracy since that time and how rapidly um, the way that social media has influenced who we are as a nation and, and politics has come. Um, and then, you know, the, the idea of the gourmet food truck itself as an expression of this rising interest um, in these kind of artisanal or interesting ways of preparing food and food trucks as uh, a foodie culture kind of emerged in that same time. So yeah, the food itself, you know, again, I'm sure it could be other foods that tell similar stories, but yeah. it pulls in some of what I see is that some of the most dominant trends today are concerns around immigration, around the use of social media, around uh, our relationship to highbrow and lowbrow foods. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and the way that really taco trucks had been well, long before gourmet food trucks emerged in the early 2000s, a very common way that especially sort of um, Central American farm workers were being fed in different places, but how that was not a well-respected, um, you know, economic a mode of production. And then these fusion food trucks yeah, took now a very cool. different, right, right. <laughs> so that too, how, you know, how the economy and government allows and disallows different forms of food production based on the mm. kind of uh, valence of them.
Yeah. Uh, well, it's a cool book. Thank you. <laughs> um, what's next for you? Do you know yet? I mean, you're taking a little break. This came out not too long ago. Yeah. yeah, I'm working on a few different projects. I'm definitely inspired by having written it for somewhat of a general, more general mm -hmm. audience. I'm trying to think about how to turn more of the research I do toward useful ends. Um, so I've been working for a while on a book on the history of food waste um, in America, but kind of global context, how hmm. food waste came to be such a pressing problem and how rooted it is also, again, in kind of government policy decisions, cultural yeah. change around what Prices, we think of yeah. as, as valuable and not, and how what it means to waste food in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and then I'm also working on kind of a, a family history project that I've been also working on for a long time, trying to think about how some of these lessons about the meanings of food and environment and storytelling um, kind of emerge in my own family history and some of the, the mention I said about the personal roots of how I came to this work uh, trying to, to to piece those apart but hopefully in ways that might be of interest to broader readers as well. That's so cool. Yeah. Anna, thanks so much for taking the time Thank and talking to me today. Yeah, it was a great conversation. you enjoyed this episode of our podcast you can reach us with questions comments and suggestions at leevinsel at gmail.com or by following me on twitter at sts underscore news or on youtube at people's things our podcast is distributed by the new books network the leading platform for academic podcasts so that you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Peoples and Things, like most things in this world, depends on the work of many people. I want to thank my brother Jake Vinsel for writing the music for the show. I want to thank my buddy Juliana Castro for designing the logos for the podcast. You can check out her work at julianacastro.co. Joe Fort is the producer for the podcast, and Mandy Lamb is the production assistant. This podcast and other Peoples and Things programming are produced in affiliation with Virginia Tech Publishing and supported by the Center for Humanities and the University Libraries at Virginia Tech. For information about other podcasts from Virginia Tech Publishing, visit publishing.vt.edu. For the entire Peoples and Things team, I am Lee Vinsel. And most importantly, I want to thank you for listening. Thanks.